All right, it's Friday on the Fan Morning Show. We're back, Justin and Ailish, with our favorite Friday guest, John Morosi, MLB Network Insider, who is in our fine country, in our beautiful province, checking out our immaculate hamlets. How's it going, John? <laughs> I'm doing outstanding, Ailish and Justin. Uh, good morning. Yes, good morning from Grand Bend. Uh, we are here uh, on a family trip. Loving it. Uh, visited Bayfield uh, earlier in the week. Saw the uh, the signed Ryan O'Reilly jersey, Ooh. of course, uh, right very close to his hometown uh, here in, in Bayfield, and uh, had a great dinner last night at the Lake Hound uh, here in Grand Bend. So all the all the spots visited Stratford this week. Saw much ado about nothing, which was just an extraordinary production there in Stratford. So uh, you know how I feel about Canada, Ailish. So it's just it's great for me to be here as a uh, just as a visitor and have my family here too. Stopped in St. Mary's, saw the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. So uh, we're seeing all the spots here this week. I am so proud of all the places you just named. We have listeners that love when their little town and their hamlet are mentioned. And I'm sure you made a lot of people happy with that. Um, St. Mary's, the uh, obviously the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, a very special place that I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners have also been to as well. Um, I'm probably not your first time there, but a big weekend uh, and nonetheless here in terms of uh, getting in. So, so how do we preview the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame this weekend and what to expect in terms of a big ceremony? Sure, it's going to be great, and I was I was able to stop in and, and first of all just enjoy the, all the the great artifacts they have there, and, and the the gallery of all those who have been honored is I really recommend it to anybody who has not yet been. It is worth the trip, uh, no matter where you're coming from. It's just it's so cool. Uh, so just credit to everybody that that puts on such a great museum there. Uh, it's a special weekend because not only do you have the the four in, inductees from this year's class. Uh, including, uh, of course, the, the great Jays star, Jesse Barfield. You've got Rich Harden there. Of course, uh, all the things that Rich achieved as a pitcher in Major League Baseball. You've also got uh, two members who were not able to travel here since 2020, uh, Jacques Toussaint, uh, of course, the, the great uh, Montreal Expos broadcaster, and John Olerud, who I was actually, uh, as, as part of this family trip, I'm here with my brother, and we are just talking about how much we loved watching that swing. Uh, John Olerud's swing during those years uh, was someone that we always loved to watch play. So for him to be able to travel here and, and, and be honored a few years after uh, the initial uh, honoring for him is really special. So congrats to John and his family. And, and he's really beloved, obviously, as, as a Jay, but also a Mariner, and how important he was to that franchise. And Still is even to this day because of that's that's of course where John is from originally in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, I know it's going to be a special weekend all the way around. Uh, should be beautiful weather as well. So uh, just uh, I, I want to send my congratulations to everybody who's being honored here this weekend. Well, you mentioned the Olerud swings. I mean, the Blue Jays could use a few of those uh, right now. The offense drying up a little bit and doing so against a Baltimore Orioles team, which is, you know, maybe it kind of hits you over the head just a little bit against Baltimore because there's the notion that the Orioles are what the Jays could have been. And I don't know necessarily sure if that's all that fair or accurate. Like, it just feels like they have an abundance of more when the Blue Jays just had a couple players that were coming up and you were, you know, working to build around a team uh, or build around a couple young guys a little bit more aggressively than the Orioles had did. But if you look at these two teams, is it easy to, like, see that contrast when you juxtapose? Is it, hey, this is the Orioles team maybe did it right where the Blue Jays maybe cut a, cut a few corners here? Like, when you look at these two teams right now, have we reached the point where the Orioles, with their rebuild, have surpassed the Blue Jays? I think they have surpassed the Blue Jays, at least for the moment. And And to your point, one of the more 
compelling parts of the Orioles roster as you look at it now is that not only do they have one of the best records in Major League Baseball, they still have, by many observers' opinions, one of the best farm systems still right now in the game. And that's scary if you're another ALEs team like the Jays because this is not the limit. You've got Jackson Holiday coming up, and while I'm not sure if Jackson's going to make it to the big leagues this year, he, he, by all accounts, is every bit the player that Rutschman or Henderson is at the moment uh, they expect Holiday to be, which is frightening uh, if, if you're a Jays fan. And, and they are a very, very uh, homegrown, reliant team, and it's worked. Um, and I think the other part that's, that's somewhat dangerous about Baltimore is that because their farm system is so good and because they have almost zero in the way of, of large contracts that are weighting them down, they they are going to be able to be very nimble at the deadline, and, and they may be able to swing a trade for a significant starting pitcher. I think that's going to be their need. I know that maybe didn't look that way yesterday with, with Al Wells' pitch, but they, they they probably, if they're going to be a World Series team, need one more starter. But they're really close to a finished product. Their bullpen, as you saw, Bautista come in, and he's able to get the, the last out of the eighth, and, and what he was able to do to, to really – to stop that game in its tracks yesterday, um, they've got it all. They really do. I think they're just, to your point, they're a little bit better than the Jays in in pretty much every area. And and I'm not really sure how that would change over the balance of the regular season. Now, I, I will point out, if, if you look at some of the, the metrics and, and the ways that, that we prognosticate uh, just by the math of it, uh, the, the Jays' chances of making the playoffs, I saw – uh, baseball reference still has them as a 60% chance to make the playoffs for the Jays. So th- there are still lots of reasons to be confident, but I, I fully agree with what you're saying, that, that when you look at the just the rosters as they sit today, the Orioles have won both series against the Jays this year, and I think the last few days proved they're just a little bit sharper in terms of execution in multiple areas than the Jays are right now. Uh, you mentioned the deadline there, John, with the Orioles. Uh, and I wonder if that's like their obligation or they would feel obligated to pursue or aggressively pursue upgrades because clearly they have some needs. I mean, you look at the starting pitching staff and it's not like, yeah, it's performing well, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not overwhelming in terms of name value and uh, I guess potential where their strength in the in, in terms of pitching is definitely in the bullpen with their homegrown talent. But I wonder a team that has is actively enjoying the fruits of a slow and methodical and organic build would try to rush anything, even though they are in a position like they are in right now. Do you think they'd have some patience or would they just be like, Hey, we, uh, the position we're in necessitates that we try to be as close as we can to a world series contender right now. I, I do think it's, it's the latter, but the interesting thing to me, Justin, is that that, that is defined differently for every team that, and, and we, we can remember too, that if you go back in the history of the game, it's not always the big name who is the, the best move at the deadline. I, I, I fully expect the Orioles to do something, but then again, I'm not even sure that Shane Bieber is necessarily the guy that they need or, or the best fit for them. Uh, maybe it's Lucas Giolito. Maybe it's it's someone who's not as obvious as as those two names. Those two names. I think Giolito and and Bieber in many ways are those that are going to be talked about a lot. 
uh, during the course of the next six weeks. But th- there may be some starters that aren't aren't as as prominent who end up making a huge impact when they're moved. Uh, I, I think there are certainly teams that have starting pitching to move. The, the The Royals are very very far out of it. Is is Zach Greinke one possibility? Uh, I would I would mention his name. I think the Tigers, while they don't have a ton of Starting pitching depth, they have to wait and see how Eduardo Rodriguez does come back from the IL. Um, he's a name to watch. Um, the Nationals have some pitching to move as well. Um, you've got a name like Chase Anderson, who's, who's actually pitched pretty well for Colorado this year. So th- there are some lesser names that are that are going to be available. And I, I fully expect Mike Elias to make that move. But he also probably doesn't feel as, I guess, the, the, any desperation because they're a pretty good team as they are with a fairly clear need, and there's enough supply of what they need that I think they'll be able to handle that and then trust still a postseason start to someone like Wells, who obviously yesterday shows that he deserves it based on the way he's pitching right now. We're talking to John Morosi from beautiful Grand Bend, Ontario. Um, okay, so we are six and a half weeks from the deadline. I think it, we could start maybe talking about it at least any buzz um, that you're feeling but the Blue Jays will be in an interesting spot and maybe some of these divisional records and these divisional games will will you know tip the hand at where they'll be going is there any conversations yet is it too early to start talking about trade deadline um, moves or at least feelings around Blue Jays baseball I don't think it's too early at all and part of the reason is that we are are seeing them not necessarily make a, a sweeping move to to even even a minor one uh, from the outside, whether it's a waiver claim or a minor league signing, to address the rotation need while Manoa is away. And um, so I, I would actually say between the two teams that Toronto at the moment has the greater need for a starting pitcher than even Baltimore has. Because if you look at yesterday's game, it's another good demonstration of where, uh, of, of where they're at with Kikuchi, who has been better than last year, but he is still a four to five inning pitcher. And, and the fifth inning was where that game started to turn. And, and that with, with you, when you've got someone who is going four or five innings every time, and then you've got at the moment, an opener um, covering Manoa's spot. And you're not even entirely sure what Manoa's production is going to be when he comes back. And again, I'm hopeful and, and believe he'll come back, but we just don't know exactly when that will be that's difficult. I, I find that to be a very difficult way to win, especially in this division. If you've got one pitcher who the, the record says it's going to be four or five innings every time. And then two days later, more than likely it's an opener. I, I, that's a lot. That's mm-hmm. a lot to ask of your bullpen. It's also a lot to ask of, of Kevin Gossman to be great every single time out. And, and you saw Bassett, you know, when, when, when the one game happens and Bassett isn't isn't brilliant, it's it's hard to win. So I just think it's putting a ton of stress and strain on on the three guys who have been really good. And Barrios, of course, was was just otherworldly this week with the with the no hitter bid. So I, I I look at the way the rotation looks at the moment. Alish is being somewhat unsustainable in terms of being able to compete against the very best teams. And, and, and the Jays know more than we do about how well Manoa is performing. And it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, really up to them about what the pace is with, with him. But I, the way I look at their rotation right now, I see a greater urgency than, than the Rays would have, than the Orioles would have. 
to add a starting pitcher because I, I don't see the current arrangement as being all that conducive to um, to really carving into what is now a, a double-digit deficit in the American League East. If we keep with starting pitching, um, I know you mentioned Jose Brios was otherworldly this week. I wanted to ask you, we brought this up yesterday on the show, about where Jose Brios' bounce back in terms of from last year to this year ranks league-wide. I know we see maybe the opposite, some some teams that had great pitchers that have now fallen off, but the way that Barrios has regained his form and he's even pitching at a level that he hasn't done previously in the MLB, and he's doing that for the Blue Jays, how does that compare when you look around the league in terms of pitchers that are, are back in the realm of uh, usability that the Toronto Blue Jays really wanted, especially with that big contract? Right. No, It's a really important point, and, and I, I, I look back and, and say – this has been one of the more important year-over-year uh, upgrades and bounce-backs that we've seen of any star-level pitcher in Major League Baseball this season. Uh, th- this is a, a massive, massive development for the Blue Jays, and and this is just a great—it's a great lesson, honestly, in how how baseball can work, and and to where even in every game and every team, you've got Manoa who has gone from one direction to the other. It's it's been the opposite for Barrios. I think on the on the offensive side, uh, not a pitcher, but I, I think what Jared Kelnick has done with with the Mariners stands out to me as as being a really strong demonstration of what he's what he's able to do, and and I think he has taken full advantage of of the shift not being in play anymore. So I think on the offensive side, it's it's been one of the better prospects in the game getting back to that status. But there are not many star level pitchers who struggled in the way that Barrios did last year, who are now pitching as well as he is right now. It's he is in the all-star conversation. Uh, I think re- really the Jays have three starters who are who are part of that all-star conversation, and, and who knows how it all shakes out at the end of the day because of uh, roster decisions and, and, and different ways that all-star rosters are made up. But that's something the Jays can be very proud of. I think it's really a, a nice a nice feather in the cap of, of Pete Walker and, and the Jays' performance group and, and, and analytics as well. And honestly, Ailish, for me, if, if I'm a Jays fan looking for hope that that things will get better for Manoa, there's a pretty good indication there with with the story of Barrios because the, the struggles of of Manoa, while quite profound, if you look at the numbers, are not that much more drastic than what Barrios went through at different times last season. So um, again, a bit, huge marks to, to Jose for what he's doing right now, and I think you, you've got to credit Pete Walker and, and his group for for helping him get to this point. Yeah, maybe an all-star, maybe comeback player of the year. I'm not sure the bounce back is that severe, but maybe he's in that conversation. But maybe most importantly, the guy who both steps into Manoa's role this year and allows uh, Manoa to have someone to look at in terms of bounce back ability when we're talking about next season. Uh, I think the Barrios story is definitely one of the best being authored by the Blue Jays uh, this season. Uh, Matt Chapman was one of those stories. Um, He had a great first month of the year. He was arguably the best hitter in baseball. And for that reason, he was like an easy regression candidate. But are we seeing something more than just regression with Matt Chapman? I think we are, and and I, I really think in a lot of ways um, he he's someone who is who is the bellwether of this Blue Jays lineup. That that what what he was able to do in April, especially with the home runs that he was hitting, he was the kind of player when he was producing at that level in in April, who helped them win a game like yesterday, and 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 yesterday obviously ended up being a loss for the Jays. It, it was the, the the big hit at the right time. 
uh, he was supplying that early and hasn't happened quite as, as recently. I think he, he has been in the past um, at times a, a streaky hitter and, and, but to your point, it's a bit a bit longer than a, than a streak, and and I, I do think he's got a lot of uh, a lot of pressure on him. He knows it's a contract year. Um, is that part of it? Was was the was the start so great that that in some in some ways you almost surprise yourself with how well you're playing, and do you then do you then start to reflect about what what has gone right and then it and then it becomes a little more challenging to to keep in sync um I, there's not something that you see that jumps off the page mechanically uh where you would say oh my gosh he's a he's a very different hitter now than he was in april but to your point the results haven't been there and and i i would agree that it's longer than just a a, a slight um return to the mean and, and i would also add that that when you look at the way this lineup produces and flows he is the guy i believe who's the difference between them having a a good lineup and potentially at times a great one and i think springer's help has been important in in getting him back obviously a huge loss with belt uh, going back on the il but i i do believe that chapman for this next segment of the season uh if he can get going again it's going to help them ride through uh the challenges that will unfold with Without Belt, because he was just he had become so important to them, and I think that's now going to be a, a huge challenge for, for Matt Chapman and the rest of the Jays lineup. I mean, tagging along with him would be Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And of course, we've been spending a lot of airtime talking about Vladdy here in the market, and I'm sure you understand that. But what are people mm-hmm. saying about Vladdy outside of Toronto, like the, the baseball people of the world? Um, how are they viewing Vladdy's season thus far? And, and are we maybe a little bit too close to the sun in terms of it, letting it affect uh, how we view this baseball team? Well, it's a, it's a really great question. I think that he he is not obviously driving the ball with the same authority that he did a year ago and, and, and even two years ago, when you, when you think about where, where he's at at the moment, I, I, I look at the, 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 the lack of, of, you know, home, sort of like pure, just like home run, the, the number of balls that he hits that are just those absolute moonshots that are just, that are squared up perfectly. We just haven't quite seen as many of them this year as we have in the past. And I do think it's caught some attention of, of people in, in the in the larger baseball community, and and I think it's inspired a lot of debate and discussion about who the most important player is on that team to either a look at him in the lineup at the moment, b see as an all star, and and c who who deserves the money in terms of signing them because uh, we've talked a lot on on this program in our conversations about where they're where their signing priorities are, should be, could be, and, and where that stands. And, and obviously every day that, that peels off the calendar without a deal for either one of them is, is one more day closer to a, a reality in which one or both of them walks. And, and I, I do think that there is now you look at the positional value, and this is where this next couple of years probably where Vladdy's going to have to show is he a – is he a really good player or is he a, a generational player? And, and his production is going to tell us because when you look at the, you look at the, the year after you're at that position. And that's why I, 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 when you talk about ways the teams are built and how they, and, and how they really sing together when it's a, it's a true um, championship team, 
you almost always have a, a first baseman who who produces at a very high level, and and because of the the, the power profile of that position, to be truly one of the three best in the game, which is what it often takes to be at that elite team, three or four best. Okay, well, are, are you better than Freddie Freeman? And the answer right now is no. And you start going down the list of, of other great first basemen in the sport. It's you look at what Paul Goldschmidt's done over his career. I know the Cardinals haven't, haven't aren't having a great season, but you ask yourself, are, are you having a better career than Goldschmidt? Are you having a better career um, than, than Freeman? And I think right now the answer to both is no. And so I, I think this is now that moment where, um, where Vladdy with his production and his preparation every day is going to have to decide uh, where he fits in that conversation. And I think um, to, to your question, Ayla, she's, He's just a notch below where the greats are right now. Uh, John, last one for you. Uh, we have someone I imagine you are very, very familiar with uh, at 830, Victor Martinez. Uh, looking forward yeah. to our conversation with him, but I wonder if you have a favorite memory, an anecdote, something to share for our final guest of the show and week. Sure. I, I, a couple of things, and, and I'd love for you to ask him this question about his, his journey, if possible. I'll just I'll offer one thought. He signed at 17 with Cleveland and I, I at the time I believe he was still a shortstop and wanted to be a shortstop and 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 this is as perspective here and the way that the baseball opportunity calendar arrives for a young teenager from Latin America um, that that he was 17 and, and as Victor told me once that was his last chance was it was a scout from Cleveland who offered him a chance to catch he didn't want to he didn't want to be a catcher but he knew that to support his mother, this was what he had, the decision he had to make. So, and we, we talk about why he was always so focused, his professionalism, the way that he approached his craft. I, I think that for Victor, remembering being that 17-year-old from his, his town in Venezuela um, and that being the last chance, he never took a single day for granted in the major leagues. And I think that he, he has carried that through. I know he's made a huge impact already. For the Jays, and I think he's just an amazing story that that he he really has achieved at such a high level in in this game. And I, I just I love his his story, his work ethic. Yeah, uh, I remember in the playoffs once with the Tigers, he was playing with I think a like a badly strained oblique. You know, this is he was playing as hurt hurt enough that the Florida Panthers would have a lot of respect for what he for what he did. Uh, but Victor, uh, just eminent respect for him. And again, remember that opportunity age to be 17 years old and have that be your last chance. Um, that that is, it's a tough road for a lot of players from Latin America, and that's why they broadly have my respect. And Victor, in particular, has huge respect for me. Uh, that's great respect. If my key moment in life came at 17, I'd be in a world of trouble right now. Uh, John, enjoy Ontario. We're glad that you're here. It feels a little bit more peaceful in our <laughs> province right now because you are within it. Uh, we'll talk, chat, we'll chat, excuse me, next week. Yes. I, I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend. And, uh, and yes, just we're, we're so much enjoying being here on the, on the Lake Huron, Lake Shore. And just uh, thanks to all the amazing Canadians who have made us feel so welcome here, including, including both of you as well. So th- thanks for everything. Love it, John. Thanks again. We appreciate you having on or coming on. I can't speak. You could? It's like I'm a little emotional I think based you're on... Just, you're moved by John Morosi being in Grand Bend. I was. And you know what? I was like, we should have brought up that he needs to go get a pastry. He should go to the Cottage Cafe right there. Oh, you blew it. You should have jumped in. On River could Road Could have spared in Grand me of having Bend. the marble mouth there. Uh, it's okay. I'm just, I just like, love listening to John.
And he's in our fine province. This perfect Friday, I guess. If you were in Grand Bend, go find John Morosi and say hello before he makes his way back to Michigan. It's the best we can do. We want to make sure he wants to come back and be a part of our country. Oh, he wants to come back. Perfect. Um, that was a great story about Victor Martinez. We'll have him on at 8.30 to wrap up the show. Uh, he's currently a Blue Jays special assistant, so we'll talk about some time he spent touring around the minors, uh, what the young Blue Jays guys are up to. It feels like our depth system isn't uh, maybe where we want it to be when we just look at the Baltimore Oreos, but um, how they're how they're faring. Um, maybe we'll see some updates on some of the young guys with Victor. That's at 8.30. Got David Croft on it. Eight. Uh, he's the lead F1 commentator for Sky Sports. You know him as Crofty. It's lights out and away we go. Setting up the Grand Prix this weekend in Montreal. Michael Breed will join us before that at 7.30 to talk about the Canadian Open and, and the Canadian Open, but of course the U.S. Open, which is underway and we've seen some course records or mm-hmm. some tied for course records and his show is called Course Record on CBS, so it's just timely. And it's time now for something to chew on. Brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. You got this one, Justin. Okay, so the Raptors made a couple hires yesterday. Yeah, just snuck that right in there. Uh, Adding to Darko Ryakovic's coaching staff, Wizards assistants Pat Delaney and Jama Malalela is back with the organization after a stint, I believe, well, he was definitely in Golden State. I don't know if that's where he was last year, but Jama is back in the fold, which is exciting because mm-hmm. he was a guy who was really, really loved, an endearing individual in his time uh, with the Toronto Raptors. So he's back. That's awesome. And um, he, he spent some time with the Raptors 905 in the G League mm-hmm. as well. I think that it's... The, the best successes that organization has had at least came under Jama? I think it's fair to say that these are coaches that are very good with developing young players. Mm. And what have we been talking More about? Maybe the direction of the Toronto Raptors, something to chew on is which direction they might be going. Are we seeing these recent hires of a head coach and two assistant coaches giving us more of that insight without saying it out loud, just making those moves. So we are six days away from the NBA draft. It's and crazy. it's like, uh, can we just decide, not decide on direction? Cause I hope you've decided on direction by now, Toronto. <laughs> Uh, let's see it though. I want to know what they're up to. I want to know if they're running it back, if they're just moving forward with Darko or we're actually moving towards something that's far different than it has been. You know, the camp I'm in, Mm -hmm. I want to see real decisiveness. I want to see them actually tap into what Darko and Jama want to do, Mm -hmm. which is develop young players and not just hope that the current core or the remnants from a championship can actually give you something more in a second chapter. Like, I just don't believe that's possible. And I want to see these guys in their best capacities. I think that maybe we're a step in the right direction, um, but happy to see them back in the organization. And we're rounding out the bench. We're getting some people that can make some decisions for the Toronto Raptors. Um, that is always a plus. So we're going to have Michael Breed join us after the break, host of a new breed on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio and host of Course Record on CBS 62s. For Ricky and Xander yesterday in day one of the U.S. Open. I don't know if it's going to be a 20-under champion this time around. We're on pace for it. But we certainly are on pace. Let's take a look at the U.S. Open with Michael Breed. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think there's anyone in the world that doesn't know this song? Is there anyone in the world who doesn't like this song? It's a bop, as the kids say. It's outstanding. Let's hear a little. I know. I want to. We got. We got to get to breathe, though. 
It's a good tune. It is a great tune. A little Miley um, Cyrus for those not listening. We're back on the Fan Morning Show. Sports at 590 The Fan, Cuthbert and Forfar. Uh, let's bring in Breed, one of the more recognizable faces in golf commentary, host of A New Breed on Sirius XM, PJ Tour Radio, and host of Course Record on CBS. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Uh, we are doing pretty well, and they were doing pretty well out Good. there on LACC, uh, the grounds at LACC. Uh, did not expect to finish our golf round yesterday and see that two guys were hunting for major championship single round records. Uh, 62s at LACC, is that, I know that wasn't the expectation, but is that still like, wow? Are you kidding? It's, it's like, <laughs> it's a double wow. Like one guy to shoot 62 is a wow. Two guys shooting 62 is, you got to be kidding, Mal. Oh, wow, wow. I was, I was stunned. I felt like uh, this was not a uh, U.S. Open. This was a PGA Tour event. Um, with the width of the fairways, you almost felt like you were in Hawaii. I mean, seriously, like 62-yard wide fairways doesn't happen in a, in a U.S. Open. It happens, uh, you know, at the, at, 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 in Kapalua, at, at, in, in Hawaii. Um, I was, I was stunned by what was going on. I also thought that what was interesting to me coming into the week, everybody's talking about how difficult the golf course is and how challenging this, this is, and, you know, all these little different things are going to take place. And the players go out there and their familiarity with a golf course that they're unfamiliar with was really, really impressive. And they went out there and they took advantage of it. And it wasn't just two guys. It was everybody. I mean, if you look at the scoring, Everybody seemed to play the uh, great. It really was uh, an amazing, an amazing day of play. Think about this: normally a 71 in a U.S. Open, you kind of feel like you're right there. Normally, like two, three under is leading, and 71 is right there. 71 is tied 56. That means there are 55 people that shot even par or better in this field. It was uh, extremely gettable, and I think the USGA is going to kind of, uh, you know, if, if you wanted the, to have this as an arm wrestling match, I think the players won that first one. I think the USGA is going to fight back, and this is going to be quite a different story on a Friday. It certainly felt like we were watching a, a golf course in, in uh, Hawaii because it was the first time we were watching primetime golf in a long time here on, on the East Coast. It was a treat, really, uh, to watch golf happening when we were going to bed. Um, so with the course that you mentioned, yeah, maybe the, the, the players got the first punch, but how much can they make this more difficult for them? Is it moving the pins? Is it is it really just shaking things up today? Are we going to see a 20-under winner? Like, what can they do for the next three days to, to make this more of a, a battle for the players? Well, certainly they, they can't change the width of the fairways. That's not yeah. going to happen. <laughs> but they can, they can change the firmness of the fairway, right? And so... They're going to need a little sunshine to, to happen, and apparently that's going to happen. I mean, you're in L.A. You're not getting sunshine, right? I mean, what's that song, I Love L.A.? Uh, you know, the sunshine is, is what you count on. Um, so they can firm up the fairways a little bit, but I don't think that's going to happen today. I think that will be that, that way on a Saturday or a Sunday, uh, and you'll start to see it get a little bit browner. The ball will start bouncing around a little bit more. That will introduce the rough, which will introduce um, a lack of spin. The other thing that, that you saw yesterday a lot of was a lot of players in the fairway um, spinning the ball back to hole locations. That I don't think is going to be the case as well. I think the greens are going to get a little bit firmer. I think the hole locations will get a little bit tougher. There are certain things that they can control, and there are certain things that they can't control. They can control the firmness of the greens. They can control the hole locations. 
Um, they're not going to be able to control the, the narrowness of the fairways, though, that the, the firmness of the fairways, with a little bit of help from some of the golf gods, the firmness of the fairways can, uh, can definitely pick up. Okay, so maybe they can make it a little harder. Maybe sunshine will help things, at least in terms of like a USGA standard. Um, but eh, yeah, maybe we don't have a major championship record at the end. Maybe no one goes to 20 under, but there's still, it begs the question, like is LACC up to a U.S. Open standard? Because frankly, you know, we see all the viral clip or the viral clips, but all the clips, you know, midweek where it's like, hey, look at how far this ball th- uh, drops through the rough. No one's going to be able to get up and down from here. But really, no one really had trouble with anything. So you wonder then, is this course U.S. Open standard? You know, that is worthy. That is a, a very worthy question. And the answer is, yeah, it is. Um, I think that a lot of what happens in a U.S. Open, particularly early on in a U.S. Open, is the, the golf course gets, gets gettable. And, and we all kind of sit there and go, hey, what's going on? Think back to uh, the 2020 U.S. Open at Wingfoot where players were really kind of having, you know, not a, an overly challenging time in that first round, but it got firmer and firmer, it got faster, it got more challenging, and all of a sudden one guy is under par. Bryson DeChambeau is, is the only guy under par, and he wins by six. Um, so, you know, I, I think what you're going to see is I, I think you're going to see the golf course kind of pick up in its its speed and its bounciness and its firmness. Um, and I think, you know, come Saturday, 71 will be a good score. Yesterday, it wasn't. Uh, in a couple of days, it will be. And I, I, I don't know if, you know, I, I originally thought that, that minus eight was going to be um, the winning score right now, you got two guys that are at minus eight. Mm. Will they will they be able to do that through the remainder of the week? You know, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot has to do with what happens with the weather and what happens with the the USGA and their personalities. If they if they get a little frustrated and they they start wanting to to try to uh, rein this in a bit, if they don't, you know, you could see sixteen, seventeen under par win this tournament, and that would be for a U.S. Open almost unimaginable. We're chatting with Michael Breed, who is one of Golf Digest's top 100 instructors. And uh, my co-host oh, I here, some help. Ailish, is, you know, she's working on her putting. Maybe a simple <laughs> golf or a putting tip at the end of the show but or at the end of the, the interview. But for now, let's let's stick with the leaders and the guys who built themselves a pretty sizable. Like, if things get more difficult and you're already eight strokes under par, I mean, you're looking good heading into the final three days of this tournament. And Ricky Fowler is a fascinating uh, case study. I mean, this guy seemed like he lost it, like maybe court uh, tour card would be in jeopardy uh, in a couple years, a guy that maybe should have taken live money, at least based on what we saw, but he's turned around his career this season. What do you think has keyed that for him? Well, I think, first of all, the switch to, to Butch Harmon has been an enormous thing. He worked with Butch for a while, um, then left him, and now has come back to, to Butch. And Butch is a guy that I know um, fairly well. And we've had uh, several conversations about Ricky's improvement. Um, but what, one of the things that, that Butch does is he, he really knows what to say to somebody away from the, the mechanics of a, of a golf swing. And so when you look at what's going on with Ricky, Ricky actually is standing over a golf ball now believing that he can do what he needs to do with it. And he's gotten some familiar feels. Um, he's starting to get a little bit more trust in his, in his motion. And he's playing – some really good golf, even though uh, he hasn't won this year. He's been close. He's, he's made 15 of 17 cuts. He's got six top tens, including a tied second at the Zozo. He also finished tied sixth 
uh, a couple of weeks ago with the Charles Schwab, um, 74-72 over the weekend last weekend, or a couple of weeks ago at the Memorial um, to finish tied ninth. You know, this guy has really, he's really gotten a lot better. And now with the confidence that he's gained in, in the putting, it is, it is really fun to see um, what this guy is doing. He gained almost five shots on the field with the putter yesterday, which is a welcome surprise. And, and you know, you think back to, to, to uh, when he won a player's championship and, and when he was um, in the top five in every single major championship you're talking about 10 years ago, back in 2014, 2015, that time frame, that was the time when, when Ricky, we were all thinking this guy's not just going to win one major, he's going to win multiple majors because of the, the completeness of his game. And uh, he lost that for a little bit. He's gotten it back. And yesterday, he really, uh, he, he really played some, some, some heady golf in all areas of the game, not just in the putting, but also with the, with the swinging and certainly around the green. So I expect Ricky to continue to play nicely. I don't know what the golf course is going to be like, but I expect him to play nicely. And the hope is, I mean, wouldn't it be a great feel-good story if Ricky Fowler were part of the conversation come Sunday afternoon? Yeah, and atop the leaderboard uh, with him is Xander Shoffley as well, eight under. But uh, he's a guy that seems like he's always in the fight but has been unable to claim a major so far. What do you think it is that's holding him back from that breakthrough, and does he have it this time around to continue being at the top? Well, he's he's also had a tremendous year. And, and, you know, when you think about, when you think about him, he has, he has put himself in, in great positions on in, for major championships on several occasions. I go back to um, the U S open at uh, Wingfoot, And on that Sunday leading into, you know, that, that, that Sunday afternoon, he was right there. He has, he has, he is not uh, unfamiliar with this situation. But the other thing about, about uh, Xander is this. Xander is a guy who is one of the most consistent players on the PGA Tour. He strikes it really well. He's a good driver of the golf ball. He's sixth on tour in strokes gain approach to the green, which everybody said this is going to be a week of second shot golf, which is what approach the green is all about. And he's sixth on tour there, and he's 12th on the PGA Tour in putting. And so you start thinking about uh, Xander Shuffle. Yeah, I, I know he hasn't had a win. I, I get you, but man, has he put himself in, in position to do so? Um, he's, he he has not missed a single cut this year. Now I know he withdrew from the Century Tournament Champions because he had that bad back that was going on. But after that, he comes back at the American Express, shoots 62 in the final round, and finishes tied third. I I, I mean, eight top tens in, in 15 cuts made, and he's got a second at the Wells Fargo and a fourth at the RBC. He has put himself in some really, really good positions, and this is not um, unexpected. This is actually pretty well expected. And also, too, his his record in U.S. Opens is extremely impressive. Mm-hmm. So I expect him to hang around, too. This is not a, a one-round wonder. That's good. It'll be a competitive weekend to come. I want to ask you about the Canadian Open because we just lived in the the Canadian heritage moment of it all with Nick Taylor and yeah. the incredible putt. But I wonder how the Canadian Open and that weekend's being talked about uh, in the United States. Is there still this like excitement uh, lingering when the Canadians are out on the course and, and just how it was covered not here in Canada where it was the biggest storyline that we'd seen in golf in a very, very long time? Yeah, you make a great point, Ailish. I, I think... Um, what what we saw last week was a a, a real feel good story. I mean, you know, 
and and kind of a surprise, right? I mean, who thinks that Nick Taylor is going to make a mm-hmm. a plus seventy foot putt on the on the eighteenth hole in front of the hometown, and the place goes nuts? And and of course, um, you know the the uh, the 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 beer flew like crazy, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> yes. It was great. It was honestly it was great to watch. But um, you know, I I think I think this. I think when you go to a U.S. Open, I, I it, it's 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 not like um, people are rooting for hometown. Like in Canada, you're rooting for the Canadian golfers at a Canadian Open. And in the U.S., because we're so used to players from outside of the country um, and getting behind them, whether it's a, a Rory McIlroy or a John Rahm, um, we're used to players outside of the country having great success and then you know getting behind them and, and wanting them to perform. Um, I, I think I think there's a respect that that uh, the the fan of golf in the U.S. has for golfers from all over the world, and they don't have the allegiance necessarily that somebody is going to have to a Canadian golfer in Canada playing. And so I think it's a little bit different. I think the the respect that they have, not just for Canadian golfers, but all the golfers at a U.S. Open, is really. Uh, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love the game of golf. It's not like go into a football game or, or a hockey game and, you know, you're rooting for one team and against another team. Um, I, I think this is everybody's kind of rooting for everybody. And, and, and I think that that's what makes the, the game of golf so special. And for the Canadian Open specifically, I mean, it's been kind of the, the, the spot where all this news w- with regard to Liv has come the last two seasons, and it was kind of derailed early on in the week, and then it ends in perfect fashion with Nick Taylor breaking a 69-year drought uh, at the tournament for yep. Canadians. So it was a great, great story and a great moment for Canada and, and golf uh, as a whole. But I do want to ask you quickly about, um, you know, the news of last week, and you're an ultra-positive guy, so I'm sure uh, you will have confidence, but when that news comes out, like, where, what do you think when thinking about the future of golf and where this sport and the PGA Tour is headed? I think um, I don't think it's necessarily uh, you know where the PGA Tour is headed. And by the way, you cannot forget about last week Adam Hadwin getting laid out on the 18th green. By the way, that was our favorite thing ever. It wasn't quite <laughs> it wasn't quite the same story as Nick, but it certainly was a, a topic of conversation. Um, what, what I would say is, you know, the, the future of the game of golf is is um, in really good hands, and I think the PGA Tour leads the way. But what this signals to all of us is, hey, we all want the, the game to come together so that we can see the best players in the world playing against one another, which is exactly what we're getting this week. You're seeing – I mean, you look at this leaderboard, and Dustin Johnson, who's not on the PGA Tour anymore, is two shots back, tied third. Bryson DeChambeau uh, is, is uh, a, a couple shots back, five shots back. He's tied seventh. You're seeing individuals that are that are playing um, away from the PGA Tour have great success, and certainly that 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 dispels some of the rumors and, and myths that if you go and play live, you're not going to be able to play anymore. Um, having said all that, I do think that there are a number of people that felt betrayed. I being one of them, I didn't expect to see the PGA Tour, um, you know, hop into the same car as as live. But at the same time, what I do think is, is that when you look at this from, uh, you know, a critical eye, uh, it, it feels to me like this is what the PGA Tour had to do. When somebody comes in and, and buys a product that's not for sale and they're able to do that, you kind of think to yourself, wow, the PGA Tour ha- has been for sale forever. 
but nobody really thought it could be purchased. And now it is purchased. And when you think about what the PGA Tour is, it's not this entity. It's a gathering of individuals. And when individuals start to go, yeah, I'm going to take my, my game and I'm going to bring it somewhere else, and all of a sudden the tour starts getting hurt because some of the best players in the world are, are choosing to play in a different place, and particularly when you see what, what Brooks does at the PGA, it, it supports that, that those players are some of the best players in the world. And so all of a sudden you start to realize, man, we better come together because if we don't come together, things are going to go down a, a, a really bad path. And so I think that for the betterment of the game, and the betterment of the game to me is harmony. The, the thing that was the worst about these last couple of years was the lack of unity that we had in the game. Nobody ever really experienced what we have experienced, where you now all of a sudden didn't like somebody because they were playing golf on a different tour and they were supporting uh, Saudi Arabia. And there were all these comments about Saudi Arabia and, and human uh, rights and all these different things that are taking place, which we haven't never really thought of in the game. Like in the game, the game of golf has been see ball, hit ball. I mean, it really has been, and it hasn't been, there hasn't been a political twist. And now all of a sudden there is. And so what I think this helps to do is it helps to quell all that. Um, and I think that is good for the game of golf. And I think going forward, and we'll see what ends up happening, but I think going forward, you know, the game will be in a better place because of it. Um, I don't know that I want to see live golf, take the best players in the world and go to Saudi Arabia and play golf down there. I want to see it like like you guys on the East Coast so I can watch it on my time zone (laughs) or at least near my time zone, like watching it last night while we were eating dinner and, and enjoying a nice evening. Well, here's hoping things settle down and, and it's, uh, you know, the betterment for golf is ahead. Uh, we are up against the clock, so I guess Ailish will be without that Michael Breed tip for our next head-to-head <laughs> matchup. That is that is entirely too bad. <laughs> I'll book a meeting. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate you coming on, though, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Anytime. I appreciate it. All the best. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the tournament. You as well. That's Michael Breed, host of A New Breed on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio and host of Course Record on CBS, also one of Golf Digest's top 100 instructors Oof. he might be the top instructor so i apologize for uh, squeezing in the live question instead of the no, one no, that I would think benefit that's most you important probably we'll book a real session you can't take his, mm, his time be, for free you know might be expensive yeah well that'll never happen i'll never get better putting but i don't need it because <laughs> yesterday was good just live in yesterday's world um yeah okay so tea time's early this morning uh, but a full day of golf for everybody i'll get the canadian tea times for you at the end of the show so you know when to tune in but nick taylor uh three over or two over but our buddy um my canadian guy Mackenzie Hughes. Hughes, is uh, kind of in the like 350 to one convo. for you yes in he the convo. is 350 to one and he's three under i'll just if he wins i'll just get verified yeah the, just oh no it. that's not that competition i'm ahead in the verification competition yeah. tweet tweet with yes. yesterday's tweet tweet that's right. Um, long summer ahead of golf. So that is true. That. Uh, quickly, we want to make sure we bring up the Canadian men's soccer team who punched their ticket to the CONCACAF Nations League final last night with a 2-0 win over Panama. Uh, Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David score both goals. So now Canada's going to play U.S. for the final on Sunday. It'll be their first major final in 23 years. So Canadian soccer to tune into this weekend. A big one for them. Yeah, playing for a cup, That's uh, that, that gets my interest for sure against the United States. The United States and Mexico, 
They went to war last night. There was some there yeah. was some animosity in that game. A uh, little less in terms of the Canada-Panama game, but that's what you want to be, right? You want to get to the point where you're Canadian soccer and you're going in the game, big stakes against Panama, and you're better, and you just prove that you're better, mm-hmm. like really decisively. And I think that's what happened. It was a pretty clean scoreline with Davies. Uh, and was it David that got the other goal? Yes. Davies and David getting the, get the goals. So, uh, yeah, that's good stuff for Canadian soccer. That's Sunday night. Uh, get the time for you when we wrap up the show. Um, okay, so David Croft is going to join us after the break. He is live from Montreal, obviously the site of the Canadian Grand Prix this weekend. We teed up yesterday, but we're going to talk to one of the greatest, uh, one of the most recognizable voices in F1. It's lights out, and away we go. You know him well. Uh, we'll get the pulse of Montreal, and he's been around many, many F1 circuits in his time. I wonder where Montreal ranks for him and if there's a favorite memory of his time calling the Grand Prix. Was there last year. I'm excited to hear what it's like this time around. The vibes in Montreal. David Croft after the break.